0: Heck yeah. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana, my friend, we're recording remotely today and it's just not the same. And not just because I am not stuffing my fat face with the pastries that you bring in to ply us with, but that we're, I don't get to hang out with you. So I feel, I feel diminished this week.
1: Chris, I was going to say I left the house this morning and I was in such a bad mood. I was like on the verge of tears and yelling at my husband that I like, I'm doing too much stuff. And oh, my gosh. And then I showed up at the office and there were donuts on the counter and I shoved my face with uh, a giant donut. And it was like this donut sandwich that had frosting in the middle, like a donut cut in half with all this frosting in the middle. And I just texted my husband. (laughs) I came into the office and scarfed a huge donut. And my mood went from a one to a four, maybe a five. <laughs>
0: maybe a five. Explain this donut to me. So this is like a glazed. It was donut. like if you
1: know, it was like a cake donut, but then okay. it was cut in half, like uh, like, like a bagel. Like, yeah, exactly, like a bagel with frosting as the cream cheese.
0: Was it a it was, fluffy whipped kind of frosting? Uh, it was, was it like buttercream,
1: like on a cake.
0: So dense, like with a sour cream consistency. So uh, this, yeah, this so is like amazing. the 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 pro diabetes version. Of a bagel, we're taking a bagel and we're taking it to the extreme. It
1: was so awesome. (laughs) Uh, I'm in a much better mood than when I left home this morning, feeling overwhelmed and on the verge of tears. I'm like the bag lady because of all the you know breastfeeding stuff, and I always have twenty bags, and I'm like dropping them, and I couldn't find my car keys, and you know just the typical stuff.
0: It is, but here we are. But one thing, one thing, I always try to remember, and I tell my kids. And I know the very kinds of mornings you're talking about. I had one recently and I always try to remember, you can always start the day over. And I tell my kids this, and I have to remind myself of this all the time, having a bad day, you're not acting like the person who you want to be. You can stop. And I stop. And I, especially if I've left the house without saying morning prayers and doing my normal ritual in the morning, it's like, okay, I have to stop and I have to reset and, and I, I have to over. eat
1: a donut and now I have to eat,
0: I have to eat a, <laughs> Should a, a I eat donut, a, a dough bagel. And yeah. A, and, and like to, a that daigle you, that you, a dagle. uh, you really have to give yourself permission to start the day over. And it, it, it really I totally
1: did after, uh, eating the, eating that donut really did, uh, put me in a good mood. Oh, I've been watching this, this HBO max documentary on Gwen Shamblin. Are you familiar?
0: Who's Gwen Shamblin?
1: She, she's the head of a kind of I'm not to the end yet, but it's like a church, but a cult. And it's around oh dear. It's basically like believe in Jesus to lose weight. And so these uh. women are on and they're like, she said that I was worshiping the refrigerator instead of God. And I told my husband, like, I totally am worshiping the refrigerator. That's me it, worshiping it, the refrigerator. And the donut definitely put me, you know, I'm having the, a good day after well, bitch, worshiping at the refrigerator.
0: I, I she, she sounds like a Joel Osteen kind of character. So I, I want to be.
1: She uh, totally is. And she's so skinny. She's like 75 pounds and just telling these people to like fast and, you know, get skinny.
0: Well, the, uh, all, I, all I can say is Bridges, this idolatry of anything is idolatry. And certainly you could make the refrigerator your idol, but I will I will withhold further thoughts <laughs> uh, on any potential heresies taking place around snack foods.
1: OK, <laughs> are we ready for our front page? We have like a jam packed, like so many items above the fold this week.
0: Well, it's, a bi- it's one of the biggest news weeks, so we better get going.
1: It really is. These are the stories we thought were most, most important this week. There are a lot of them. <laughs> Chris, massive leak. Roe v. Wade. Politico breaks the news. SCOTUS is primed to overturn the decision based on a leaked draft opinion dated February. And... You have some takes on <laughs> the coverage of the coverage.
0: Well, I want to just start out with, look, it, this is a there There was a leak around the original Roe decision. But in the what 40, was it? Tell us. I forget what side, which way there. But there, there was a similar situation that transpired in 1974. But in my lifetime, this is totally unprecedented, right? This is in a, in a way. One of the biggest news stories of our era, because you just don't get this from the Supreme Court. I want to start by mocking everyone involved, of course. And here's the lead of the New York Times story describing the Politico, how Politico got the get. Uh, quote, Politico's top editors and executives spent Sunday morning sipping Bloody Marys and nibbling bite-sized waffles and Schnitzel mm, as they chatted with top Washington officials, including Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, at an annual brunch hosted at the opulent Georgetown home of Robert Albritton, a Politico founder. What wasn't discussed? Politico was onto a giant scoop that would rattle the country. Fewer than thirty-six hours later, now I love the Wiener Schnitzel detail. I love like when you pack a story with detail and bite-sized
1: waffles. Don't don't leave out the bite-sized waffles.
0: Well, any waffle can be made bite-sized, but I, I feel like the Wiener Schnitzel is a is a tougher reach. <laughs> it's like a veal McNugget, and I, I I I credit the all Britons and their swishy brunch for having this delicious food, but. I also feel like there there are the way that Politico got this it, the the way they got it and also by the way I will say how they characterized the state of the court certainly created a huge a huge disruption but I don't know I obviously Politico's got to got to do the right do do the right thing journalistically to get the story and get it out there and get the scoop and if something like this lands in your lap Ah, uh, you got to, You know, you take it and you go with it. On the other hand, on the other hand, I also think, I also think that the the characterization of what the what the conditions on the court are, and who the sources were on that stuff, tended to increase controversy rather than take. Uh, what do
1: you What do you mean by that?
0: So we don't know we don't know who the source is. So uh, not only do we not know who the source is, obviously, but we don't know if the person who is describing what the vote on the court is, is the same source that leaked the document. And we don't know how current that, how, how up to date this information is. The leaked opinion was drafted months ago. And obviously things have changed since then. I just think that, Politico started the ball rolling and started the ball rolling in the, the determinalistic direction that this is what it's going to be. When, of course, this is not what it's going to be. This was what Sam Alito, probably the hardest line on abortion on the court, wished it would have been when he drafted it in February. But how popular that decision would be with the other justices and what the 5-3 vote is really for, is it for this, is it for something else, I think got lost in the shuffle a little bit.
1: I agree that that got lost in the shuffle, but I don't blame Politico for that. I thought it was a hell of a scoop. And I thought that in the story, it was characterized appropriately. They made clear that this is what it was in February. It could change. It does change the ensuing meltdown that happened and the characterizations of the court and what would happen. That really came from a lot of the reaction on the left and like a lot of the celebrating on the right. But I thought that the political story was pretty well calibrated.
0: No, I look, as I said, I also could
1: there be any more appalling description of journalists than this New York Times thing? They were standing and, and like accurate. They were all standing around nibbling bite sized waffles and wiener schnitzel, which is like
0: right with totally accurate and appalling Biden administration members. Yes. Fallacial house. And it's just gross. And it's but well, uh, ban the White House Correspondents Dinner. We'll get there. We'll get there. I I know we'll get there. So let's listen here to what Joe Scarborough, what 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 Joe Scarborough figured out that this draft decision, draft opinion really means. Let's hear. And yet mm. a half century of constitutional rights supported by over 70% of Americans. Let me underline that again, because people lying to you uh, on other channels will never say this. Uh, over 70% of Americans support that constitutional right. It'll be swept away by the presidents, not in this picture, and the presidents who were outvoted in each one of those elections over the last three decades. Now, Americans will rightly conclude that their voices and their votes no longer matter. So there is Joe Scarborough, who has determined that, in fact, if Roe v. Wade is uh, overturned or scaled back, that Americans will rightly conclude their voices and votes don't matter because the Electoral College something, something, something. And each side seems to be looking for, you know, Well, certainly on the left side, because then they
1: will have to make their voices heard in the states. To yeah, well, and and where and Biden laws on abortion,
0: and this echoes sort of what Biden was talking about. How well, it's it won't just be abortion; it'll be everything, and your right to privacy, and they're going to take away. No, he said it won't just
1: be abortion. Your LGBTQ child might be separated; might be not allowed in class with other kids.
0: Yeah, so the the effort to to broaden this. I mean, when I heard Chuck Schumer talking about it, this was the decision, this was happening, it was the, you know, it was the end of the world. But the hyperventilation around this thing, and what I sort of find interesting is that it does not allow, even the the coverage seldom allows the fundamental question at the core of this decision to come into play. It is not, well, and and- Many Republicans have pointed to it, and rightly so, that as Ruth Bader Ginsburg explained, she liked the outcome, but the means of doing it was incorrect. They incorrect. The Supreme Court 45 years ago incorrectly handled this question. And as a result, it has been on uh, sand. It has been built on sandy soil. Right. And that the reason that we're here today is that instead of letting this go through the normal process on the st- in the states, to figure out what Americans want to do about it, the Supreme Court unconstitutionally intervened along the way to proclaim this new right. And it it now, 45 years later, the, it's dangling. And that part isn't discussed. It's just discussed about whether access to abortion is good or bad, not the actual legal. It, it is the kind of thinking that got us into the problem in the first place.
1: Yeah, it's a good point that there is absolutely no discussion of Whether there the legal question of whether there is a right to abortion in the Constitution, it's totally elided and jumped to, you know, which of your other rights will be threatened because of this and uh, this, that and the other thing.
0: I do have to say it could almost be a weekly feature, but I was looking for something else and I caught this Sean Hannity, Chiron, lower third, all caps. Dems use SCOTUS leak to distract from failures. <laughs> as 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 if they were like, oh, we're really we're not really that upset about it. Let's talk about it, though, so that we don't have to talk about our failures. Speaking of failures, the ombudswoman, the public editor for National Public Radio, wrote a column in for the pointer uh, Institute and said, basically that abortion is so important and so divisive that objectivity is the wrong goal for news outlets. And she said this, for instance, in a newsroom, one person might be concerned with what it means to be a good journalist and another might be driven by what it means to support (laughs) women. This
1: is so amazing.
0: Still, another person might be worried about what it means to respect all human life. When people can't express their deeper concern, they feel stifled. Quote, the more people feel, uh, the more stifled people feel, the more extreme they get, said Amanda Ripley. Typically, we have a bunch of assumptions about what the industry is, or what the understory is for other people, and mostly we are wrong. So basically, the, it goes on to say that before a news organization talks about abortion, they have to go through an internal process to determine which reporters feel which way about which things and who should be allowed to express their opinions.
1: Wait, 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 be. wait, wait! This is amazing. How do you? I feel love about I love Ripley's quote in here. Abortion is the OG of high conflict.
0: It is. I mean, that's true. We have built a lot of the frame around uh, divisive issue, wedge issue coverage. Abortion is the template uh, for that and sort of the birth of modern culture war politics in in a lot of ways. But the idea that you would have to talk through with reporters how they feel about this issue and how are they going to do it. And here's what you're supposed to do if you're a reporter. Shut up. You're supposed to... Press your feelings far, far down inside. You're supposed to stifle all of your feelings deep, deep down inside. And then you're supposed to try to write in a way that is fair, aspirationally fair for the people who are consuming it. I don't care how you feel. I just don't care how a reporter feels about uh, the story that they're covering. In fact, I want the opposite. I don't want to even be able to figure out how the reporter covering the story. Now, this is, of course, different than a columnist or an opinion writer. But I really don't care. And pretending like reportage, that the work of reporting and getting facts out and doing those things should be a reflection of your inner feelings is a disaster. Aspirational.
1: I am reading this truly slack, Jod, this column.
0: And and this goes to stuff that you've talked about many times. We've talked about this.
1: I really like this quote in here. I can't recall any research that demonstrates that the audience loses trust when journalists share personal views, particularly on abortion, on abortion, said Joy Mayer, director of the Trusting News Project. I would be skeptical of it if it existed because the issue is so complex. Well, uh, Joy, I don't know, like collapse in media is has completely cratered, I would submit, because. All of you guys are sharing your personal views all of the time, in part.
0: Well, it's it's there's already way too much of it, but we've talked here many times. That
1: is so amazing. This quote. What's but we her? but we need to get conduct a study.
0: Yeah, we need to conduct. We need a to study. get the
1: research to join.
0: Get get the data. What was what's her name at the Washington Post talking about sex assault and was suing the Washington Post?
1: Oh, Felicia,
0: Felicia Sanmez. So this is more of this where how you feel let's, let's put it in another arena. Let's say that you always wanted to be an ear, nose and throat doctor, and you cared very much about the work of ontology. And you were, oh, is that the right word? I, whatever that you care about these issues. But as it turns out where you live, that what they really need are ER doctors. And that's what you have to end up doing. You know what your job is at that point is to be the best, the best ER doctor that you possibly can be and get on with it. Journalism is not about you. Journalism is about the country and it's about your reader or your watcher or your listener. It's not about you. Get over yourselves. Gee,
1: that was really amazing. Oh, and one
0: last thing on this before we go away from it. I want to just point, the great Samantha Goldstein is not with us today because she's having a shishi lunch somewhere with somebody important, I'm sure, but the work that she did with Carlin Bowman, AEI fellow emeritus uh, on collecting what Americans really think about abortion is incredibly useful because I have watched through this process, a lot of cherry picking of polls talking about Americans think this about Roe v. Wade, Americans think that about uh, Roe v. Wade. If you look... If you look just under the surface, you can see this is a hugely complicated issue, and there are not, it is not a pro-life, pro-choice question as advocacy groups would pressure and as the media often pressures. This is a, as would be expected with something so sensitive, this is a hugely nuanced issue. So we'll put in the show notes their great piece on this if you want to get a better grasp. By the way, the press should get a better grasp on public opinion on abortion.
1: You're on a roll, Chris. My my portion of the front page is coming right after this next item. But the next this one is. You don't like when I say yours, but well, uh,
0: ours. We share them together. We share them together. But what did you? Well, what did you think of the primary coverage from Ohio? J.D. Vance's win out there, and Donald Trump. What were your takeaways from that?
1: Not not all that different for I guess I think it is different from yours. I think you're you're you think that they emphasize the press emphasized Trump's endorsement too much in Ohio. But I do think it helped Vance quite a bit more than I think it will help the other candidates Trump has endorsed. But I think in Ohio, like Trump's endorsement was quite well timed yeah. and and that it was important to Vance. Yeah. So I don't think it was wrong to emphasize it. But what's your thought?
0: I agree, with, I agree with you completely. I, I think in this case, as you say, the timing of it was just right. The race was moving and the undecideds, it w- they waited until just a couple weeks, a couple few weeks before when the undecideds would start to move. And Trump, the, the other reason that Trump's endorsement here was so important was that Vance's biggest liability in the eyes of nationalist voters in Ohio was, is he... He, the former never Trump, anti-Trump, derider of Trump, uh, it has is his conversion uh, real. And there's only one person that could really absolve him of the former stuff, which was Trump himself. So for all of the people who love J.D. Vance spewing the white hot hate and going on Tucker Carlson and all of the ways that J.D. Vance has made himself the candidate for those voters, the one holdup would be. Well, but he did say the bad stuff about Trump. Is he the in coverage on election night? I believe I referred to J.D. Vance as a a baklava of phoniness, like layer, like you you were you serious this time or this time or this time or this time, and so that concern among those voters. So that's a long way of saying no candidate could be helped as much by a Trump endorsement as J.D. Vance, uh, and it is a pro-Trump state. What I think the coverage got wrong is extrapolating out from that into other races, into Nebraska, into North Carolina, into Georgia, different races, different candidates, different people, different stuff. And a lot of it tended to overlook that in Ohio, Mike DeWine, the mainstream conservative Republican of, you know, of the old guard won in a walk, right? He crushed it against a Trump aligned challenger. So it was just, it was more complicated, I think, than a lot of coverage made it seem.
1: And I do think that, well, we'll see how the other trump back candidates do in these primaries, but I wouldn't be surprised if a handful of them lose and it'll be a more complicated picture when we get through them. This one was, uh, that was a win for them.
0: Yeah. And we should remember also the truth that in these primaries, both the media and Trump, the media and Trump as often are aligned, right? they want the story to be trump trump wants the story to be trump and that's the one thing that has united donald trump and his frenemies in the press for a long time is that he makes a he makes a wilder story and he brings more interest into it and so i think there's going to be always going to be a tendency to overstate trump's role
1: well speaking of which chris onto my front page item which is the white house correspondents dinner we are in may of 2022 Mm -hmm. White House Correspondents Dinner was Saturday. I clicked through the link to who was getting awards for what at the White House Correspondents Dinner. And like none of these awards that were given out were for coverage of the White House and President Biden the Jonathan Swan got an award for his podcast on the aftermath of, you know, November through January of the Trump administration. And somebody else got an award for the, Jonathan Carl got an award for coverage of January six. But you are correct that like they want the story to be Trump and they're giving awards for coverage of Trump and hand in hand with the 2022 White House Correspondents Dinner giving awards for coverage of somebody who's not president anymore was this Politico magazine piece by Max Tanny, headline being the fall of the White House Correspondent. And I want to read a quote from it. Quote, the dulling down of the White House beat is not due to a lack of reportorial talent in the room, nor has it meant that the work being done hasn't been important Dot, dot, dot. Running for office against Donald Trump, the most theatrical attention seeking beltway, panic inducing president Olivia living memory. Biden pledged to make Washington news boring again. And then a White House correspondent unnamed is quoted saying Jen is very good at her job, referring to Jen Psaki, which is unfortunate. One reporter who has covered the past two administrations from the room said, and the work is a lot less rewarding because you're no longer saving democracy from Sean Spicer and his men's warehouse (laughs) suit. (laughs) Jawing with Jen just makes you look like an Rest assured, sir, you know, you already look like an a-hole for saying that. That's so funny. It is unbelievable, like the sneering condescension that these people have, but I submit, of course, covering the Trump presidency was uh, special because Trump was a different sort of president. But I agree. There's not a lack of reportorial talent in the room. There is a lack of motivation to there's no shortage of bad news to cover, of scandals to find, of failures to reveal. There is a motivation and a lack of serious credible and unbiased people who are motivated to give these people a run for their money. And the idea, as that White House reporter said, that you're going to look like an a-hole if you jaw with Jen, like puts in perfect relief what the problem is with these White House correspondents. And I thought that the real failure of this Max Tanney article was like taking this stuff at face value that, oh, yeah, things are just more boring and boo-hoo, and not interrogating this. Like, inflation is at record highs. There is a crisis on the southern border. 13 Marines died when we were evacuating Afghanistan. And he, like, goes with the idea that, yeah. Oh, and Biden is, like, obviously losing his marbles here. And there's a lot to cover. There's a lot to cover. That leads, like, perfectly into our next item here.
0: Well, I, I I think both things can be true. I do think, obviously, the Biden administration is less interesting than the Trump administration. That's just a fact, right? Because the Trump administration was insane and chaotic and wild and all of this stuff. And I think to a certain degree, editors and reporters got addicted to the constant controversy, right? And they played it up. They, you know shocking, breaking news. And you're like, well, what happened? It was like, well, Trump said something crazy, right? You'll have to hear the crazy thing that he said in this cabinet meeting. Oh, my gosh. And then you're like, well, did anything happen out of it? So I think in both cases, it is a failure to cover substance and an emphasis on style. It's just that Biden, I think it is fair to say that Biden is a more boring president. But I think you're also very right that there's a ton of stories to be covered here they're just, they're just not sexy. They're tough.
1: They are sexy. They could be sexy. They are not motivated to make the Biden administration look bad and to give them a hard time and to go toe to toe, which with Saki, they make fun of Peter Doocy at Fox for doing that. And Mm -hmm. they, they, there's no motivation to be that guy. And I'll give you an example of what it really jumped out at me this week. Trump, and it was funny, he referred to J.D. Vance as J.D. Mandel, getting them uh, mixed up, and it was a stupid moment. Now, that was replayed on CNN and MSNBC 5,000 times. The whole day was back to back to back to back. Trump called J.D. Vance J.D. Mandel. Joe Biden makes an absurd statement that he clearly loses his train of thought. Doesn't know what he's talking about. Come calls somebody by a different name. There's no coverage of that. If they wanted to do with Biden what they do to Trump, they could, but they don't want to. They think it's distasteful. They think it's icky. They think they will look like a holes if they do that.
0: Mm-hmm. And I look. I agree that the bias uh, factor and the newsworthy that they conspire together to create this lackluster coverage. So I think. It, and they is,
1: conspire. They're, they're they. I think it is an illusion that this administration is boring. Biden really is kind of out of it. And if they wanted to have fun with that and create a narrative around that, the way the right is done, there are plenty of video clips coming out every day that they could have a lot of fun with, but that, they they choose not to.
0: They're definitely not going to do that. You they're that
1: definitely right. not going to do that. Chris. Wrapping up, this is like our below the fold front page item, our girl, Taylor.
0: Well, what about the teleprompter?
1: Oh, oh, yeah. Do the teleprompter for us.
0: Well, only that. Speaking uh,
1: of speaking of.
0: So there's this Politico piece. And by the way, the authors of this Politico piece, it's it is not a good piece overall th- th- this is unrelated to the nugget that we're going to talk about here in a second my favorite is they just take a poll they're they're trying to set up this point of the story is it's going to be Trump versus Biden again in 2024 so they've they this is their premise so to get a poll to to show that that Trump is going to beat Biden you know where they go trump's pollster And surprisingly, Trump's pollster has a poll that says that Trump is going to beat Biden. And then I keep looking like, do you have another pollster? Do you have an impartial pollster? Did you get Biden's poll? Nope. Just Trump is ahead of Biden. And so says Trump's pollster. Give me a break. But they have this nugget in there, which is and the White House has largely abandoned using the Oval Office for press events, in part because it can't be permanently equipped with a teleprompter. Biden aides preferred the fake White House stage built in the old executive office building next door for events sacrificing some of the power of the historic backdrop in favor of an otherwise sterile room that was outfitted with an easily read teleprompter screen so the the claim here is that the reason that we don't see Biden in the oval office as much because that's a favorite you know the pool spray which is when they let the reporters in briefly when they're when the president is greeting you know the the ambassador from Burkina Faso or whatever <laughs> so that the president can say at the top of the thing well we're watching very closely x y and z it's a it's a chance to get on tv during the day in a setting that's not super heavy and it's an in between space that presidents have liked to exploit donald trump didn't need it because he had chopper talk every day walking to the helicopter to hold it <laughs> A half-hour-long news conference outside, but they're saying that Biden can't do this stuff, which, of course, would be really helpful, or would be would be helpful to some degree for a re-election campaign. Can't do it because he can't be without the prompter.
1: I want to give our listeners this insight into the different ways you can do news. This is such an amazing anecdote in this Politico story, and if these guys wanted to have fun, this anecdote in this Politico story it comes one, two. Three in the fourth paragraph from the bottom of yep. quite a long story. So very few readers will make it this far down in the story. If it were me, I would have made the whole story about and the headline around like Biden administration not using the Oval Office because right. it can't be equipped with a teleprompter. Like that's a story that's really interesting that like drives the this narrative about Biden it's they are choosing a different approach that is more boring
0: it that that is true and a an good editor of this piece aside from making them put in better polling would have said guys I think this is a standalone let's pull this out you'd say we're going to run it as a sidebar we're going to make a, a standalone story out of this. Because as you say, you could get 500 words on this pretty quickly because you'd say, okay, well, how often has it he is done It is such these? a
1: sexy anecdote. That's amazing. Like how many Oval Office addresses versus how many in this sterile room? Like how right. many times versus other presidencies? You could completely build that out. In fact, I'm going to assign that at the Free Beacon. That's really is. good. There, there it is. It is. There, there, there it is. Love it. All right. What, uh, what else you got? Oh, lady? my gosh. Our girl, Taylor. I'm so glad we paused on that. That, that was fun.
0: You, um, liked it, you like it so much that you, your Minnesota accent just came out.
1: Oh, it did? What, on what? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we'll talk about that when we get to my father, Chris, our girl, Taylor. Back in the news, back in the news. And I wonder if The Washington Post is going to get tired of issuing statements on her behalf. But I can't see the exact tweets because, alas, I am blocked. I am blocked by Taylor Lorenz. I've been blocked and reported. She went online and accused a quote unquote Drudge Report editor of harassment. She said that somebody from the Drudge Report was calling her nonstop and threatening to ruin her career. Mm -hmm. And the and when she was uh, apparently Matt Drudge called her and said, I don't know what you're talking about, but nobody associated with me or my website is contacting you. So she puts up a tweet that says, for anyone who saw my post about this man claiming to be from Drudge calling me nonstop. Good news. I heard from Matt Drudge and this man has zero power over Drudge! Exclamation point. He's claiming to be an editor all over the Internet, but he's not. Sorry to disappoint everyone saying Drudge is based.
0: What does that mean?
1: Ba- I, I asked the same question. So, based is a term that all of the young reporters at Beacon use. It means super conservative.
0: Is that what that means?
1: Yeah. And so she's basically saying that super conservative means you harass people.
0: I need, Anyhow, we, need we need research. We need, we're going to need Samantha when she's back to give us the background on what based base actually means. Based
1: means super conservative. So the Washington Post puts out a statement. Taylor was repeatedly contacted by someone who claimed to be a drudge editor. As soon as she learned the person had no connection to drudge report, she deleted the original tweet and wrote a tweet apologizing for her comment. Okay, like stupid, but fine. Then CNN contacts Taylor to say, what's going on here? You accused someone from drudge report of harassing you. Drudge says he did. You know, nobody did it. She then said she was joking. Lorenz said she was laughing very hard about the idea and was simply joking about it online. Quote, I am happy to correct the record and I have no drama with Drudge, she told CNN. So, you know, not clear. Was she joking or was she actually being harassed? And the post like puts out this serious statement about it, but it is so befuddling that she continues to do these totally lunatic things. The post as an institution is like putting out serious statements in her defense. And it's like sociopathic behavior.
0: Well, all I know is I don't care. I am now I have now reached the point with Taylor Lorenz that from here on in. For me to take any interest, she will have to do something amazingly good or amazingly bad, because I have come to the conclusion that there is no substance.
1: I'll take inter- interest for the both of us, Chris.
0: You can you can continue. The, I'll take as, interest as your for your beat, the both of us, but I could not care less. And I hear and the thing is, of course, and I wrote a column about this Monday. The. Twitter and social media is not the town square where people interact with each other. It is the place where people go to live in their hive with their fellow bees of the same persuasion, and it's boring and dumb, and what happens there doesn't really matter. And so what Taylor Lorenz does doesn't really matter.
1: This is actually related to the first thing we talked about on Roe. So she lobs this accusation out on uh, Twitter that Drudge Report editor is harassing her. She really clearly had no idea who this person was. And I felt the same way about there was a lot of speculation. There is a lot of speculation about who the leaker of the Supreme court draft was. And there are tons of people on the right lobbying accusations on Twitter based on total circumstantial evidence. They think it's this person and they like name a Supreme court clerk for this judge based on based on like pretty Thin evidence and relationships and pictures posted online. I it's just shocking to me the way that like pe- people do this and use Twitter and so embarrassing and irresponsible. It really shocked. It shouldn't, but it does. I hashtag, hashtag
0: never tweet. Hashtag yeah, yeah never tweet.
1: Can I just say, Cr- Chris has teed up this next story for us on Madison Cawthorn as. Pumping the Cawthorn story. I that was for Thanks, internal use.
0: That was for internal use only. Okay. That was for internal <laughs> use
1: only.
0: The story now broke, I don't know where I the, the It
1: was video published by the American Muckrakers Pack.
0: But it was first published I guess by On
1: Twitter, uh, somebody it was just a tweet. Yeah,
0: the the Daily Mail this is the role that the the Daily Mail has really taken on for itself in American politics. And so they're right to put the big story up and everybody has subsequently followed and WRAL, which is the ABC affiliate. But anyway, the, vener- the venerable North Carolina news outlet WRAL is on the story and other people are on the story. And the story is a Nid nude, nude Madison Cawthorn is seen in a video engaging in horseplay with one of his friends.
1: Nude horseplay. Uh, nude, like.
0: nude horseplay.
1: Yeah. So there's a website fire Madison Cawthorn, and there's a political pack associated with it. And it's just the vehicle for opposition research and materials on Madison Cawthorn, who's facing a primary in mid-May.
0: And he's got a, there's been a redistricting and look, Madison Cawthorn is a 26 year old man who is obviously deeply troubled, right? He is obviously a troubled human being. We know this because of the wild stories he made up about orgies taking place among the cocaine fueled orgies taking place among members of the house and false allegations. Is that
1: before or after they ate the bite sized waffles and Vienna schnitzel?
0: I would not want to serve <laughs> waffles at a Washington orgy just because of syrup concerns. I think you would have. <laughs> I think you would want it's something. A good point. Yeah, I think that's a little sticky. So anyway, the the unraveling of Madison. Syrup Cawthorn.
1: concerns is a good hashtag.
0: Syrup concerns. Exactly. <laughs> so it gets sticky. So
1: the <laughs> a good hashtag
0: Ma- Madison Cawthorn is unraveling. And it was clear from pretty early on that he is a troubled person and he it, with a loose relationship with the truth and who is going through some sort of, you know, has been going through some sort of personal crisis. And it is unfortunate for him, of course that he lucked his way into a house seat and then because if i may be so cynical because of his because of the fact that he is disabled that republican he's young handsome and disabled confined to a wheelchair and consequently republicans jumped on this kid like oh my gosh this is the future and we're like this guy and not the others all that fame and celebrity went to his head and it's been a, it's been a sad story what i think is really Rotten here is what this pack wants to do. What other people want to do, pretty clearly here, is show that Madison Cawthorn is gay. They want to they want to accuse him of being gay because they're showing this video. But
1: they won't really do that. But
0: they won't really just say it.
1: And right? so, they totally yeah. I mean, someone should just write a news story being like, you know, Cawthorn opponents, you know, unnamed. We don't know who the people are behind this pack, exactly. but the goal is to depict him as gay. And look, if I were the oppo people, I would just pay for commercials running this video. Like that's the point is to yep. get this stuff out there. Just put it on TV. Like just no yeah. biggie.
0: Pay pay your, pay your money, put it on. They're, TV, they're right?
1: trying to say he's gay
0: and they're not, but, but, and these outlets want, they said so they published this video. They published the snaps from him playing. And it turns out it was actually true. That he was in a crazy game show on a cruise. Never go on a cruise. He was in a crazy game show. They were playing on on a- Chris. There Royal- will
1: be a dispatch cruise at some point that, that you would- will that you will be floating around on.
0: I will. I I I I. I me and me and a cruise. I'm a, I'm good. But the idea was they showed this picture of Madison Cawthorn wearing a bustier and a bra over the bustier because apparently in a game show it's it's supposed to be sexy, silly fun in the show that they in this game that they're supposed play to on
1: collect uh items of clothing from people in yeah, the audience. The
0: opposite sex, blah, 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 blah. So they published that. They published the this very tightly cropped video of his cousin slash staffer, his cousin staffer putting his hand on his crotch. And the, all of this effort is going in that direction. And it's Madison Cawthorn is clearly not up to being in Congress, but it's also rotten to, to do this kind of a smear campaign on him where the clear goal is to pray, to prey upon anti-gay bigotry in the district. That's gross.
1: It is that time, Chris. Oh yeah. It is that time. Obsessions. Where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. And frankly, this is coming a little late because I couldn't get out of my head. Several of the stories that we already talked about, particularly the idea that it's just really boring to cover the white house now. But as always you lead me by example, what is your obsession?
0: It's the other way around. We, I go first on the last one, but I, I will give you my obsession because why not?
1: You're and, a kind, generous man,
0: and my obsession is your obsession. My obsession is is your excellence with these obsessions. So I'm going to I'm going to defer and uh, reserve the balance of my time for the gentle lady from Minnesota.
1: Okay, okay. My obsession is the two New York Times profiles, one on Elon Musk came out today this is Thursday and the other a three-part profile on Tucker Carlson that came out over the weekend and it brought to mind my friend Fred Barnes of the Late Weekly Standard he liked to say that some of the scariest words in the English language were the New York Times announcement first in a series
0: Mm -hmm, and mm
1: -hmm. that was certainly true but these are Radicalizing things. I read these profiles and I am radicalized in my hatred of the times and what it is trying to do because it is, it seems as though there is a paint by numbers feel to them where the conclusion is that the subject of the profile is a racist and they will shove any complex, interesting person into the mold so that they come out the other side and the like conclusion is racist. The Elon Musk profile, and we will link it, it's amazing. And I really do encourage our listeners to read it to see how they marshal no evidence to leave the reader with the impression that there's something untoward about Musk because he grew up in apartheid South Africa and... It tries to say that we can learn something from like the general milieu that Musk grew up in about what Musk believes and tries to say that he's because he's a racist, that he likes free speech because he's a racist. Among the things we learn are that his father was a politician in South Africa and an anti-apartheid party yep. that musk did not want to participate in south africa's mandatory military service because he would have had to participate in the apartheid regime and that musk stood up for a white student who used an or stood up to a white student who used a racist slur towards a black and that musk was bullied for doing so etc cetera, etc cetera. and nonetheless the impression that they try to give the reader is that he's a racist, even though all these facts. So they tell us they, they quote a classmate saying, quote, we were really clueless as white South African teenagers, really clueless. Another says, I think his ideas about free speech are very classic, liberal and not nuanced.
0: Nah, wait, so. The the classical liberalism of his point of
1: view is is not nuanced. It's not nuanced. That's a problem. And then they say <laughs> classical liberalism facts, is not nuanced. OK, after after, after all these facts that would suggest he is not a racist, they say some who knew Mr. Musk from his young days in South Africa said people should not discount the evolution he could have gone through once he left apartheid and South Africa behind even though they've marshaled no evidence to suggest he was a racist. And then they say, you know, so-and-so who was in German class with Mr. Musk recalled his own transformation. Like it is totally sickening what they tried to do to him. And it's like they set out with their conclusion and they marshaled all the facts that contradicted it. And they kept the conclusion and just shoved everything into the mold and hand hit publish. And the Tucker one It's more complicated because there's there are more objectionable things and actual bigoted things that Tucker has said. Nonetheless, I thought that they like Tucker's rise is really interesting. And well, a lot of people who have embraced Trumpism have like become they haven't found the professional success that Tucker has. They don't, frankly, have his intellect, his rhetorical skill, his talent. And they have to f- they're the only explanation that they can come up with for his success is he's racist. Like the conclusion is he's racist and they cannot give like. They simply can't grapple with like these this more complicated says set of facts. So they say for The Times, it's all, quote, white panic over the country's changing ethnic composition and unvarnished nativism. And they just don't have any room in their narrative for media bias, woke insanity, inflation, crime, like other things the Biden administration's doing. It is just a single-minded focus on race?
0: Well, certainly there's a lot of race baitery or race-adjacent stuff that Tucker Carlson does, the great replacement, and they want to replace you and us versus them. And, and they want to bring in these immigrants from the third world to ruin your life and destroy America. And it's, it's there, right? It's a definite, it, it, it is a definite undercurrent but i think what i object to about this new york times piece is that they're doing with tucker carlson what they accuse of what they accuse tucker carlson of doing right tucker carlson's not that important he it has a loyal following and a couple few million people watch him on weeknights and all that stuff but he's a fringeo right he's got he has moved decidedly out into weirder and weirder spaces with that for this high saliency, with these sort of addicted consumers who are his super fans. And he's very influential with those people. And certainly he can point to the j d. Vance election in Ohio as proof of concept, right? That he did it. He took j d. Vance when he couldn't get couldn't find purchase with this movement, with this nationalist movement. And he validated him. And then Trump validated Vance, right? So he can certainly say that he has, his influence in this movement and in this space, but to focus on him and put this sort of depth of coverage and into the deep inside the mind of Tucker Carlson and all of these things way overstates his significance and does with Carlson, what Carlson does with the liberal media night after night, right? He cherry picks out instances of crazy conduct by the liberal media and says, this is what they are doing to you. And here they are. They find this one, one guy, one show and again not to say it's not influential but I just I I feel like they are they're doing what they accuse him it of.
1: Is, it is 100% projection and this is the case case in point. They they accuse Carlson of they they tut tut him for devoting quote insufficient quote airtime to opposing views. This is the newspaper that 2 years ago ran out an opinion editor for having the temerity to publish a Tom Cotton op-ed. And it is honestly, it's more a description, as you say, of like the Times and their friends than than of Carlson. They say bigoted, intolerant, sealed in a bubble of their own conspiracy theories like they they are describing themselves. Yeah, that is what they are.
0: I think that's, I think, I think there is projection going on and there's also just, and we talk about it all the time, but just to, to remind post-journalism is the term. And this is where journalism or faux journalism is about creating strong bonds with consumers of your product in order to habituate them and keep them in a highly competitive marketplace. And a great way to do that is, as Tucker Carlson does, talk about, obsess about us versus them, and it's us versus them, and it's us versus them. Well, so's the New York Times. And it's different in, in profound ways, yep. and I acknowledge it's different, but it is the same model.
1: Chris, time for my favorite segment of the week. Yeah, there you Reader go. Mail. We have some awesome mail this week. First up is Nick with a wonderful question. Nick is a WBU alumna, alumnus. alumnus, 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 native son of Chester, West Virginia. What up, Chester? Of the world's largest
0: teapot. The Homer Laughlin China Company. Have you, asks, Have you ever used Fiesta Ware? Have you ever used Fiesta Ware? What is familiar? that? The brightly colored, solid colored, uh, glazed ceramic plates and dinner, whatever you call it. I don't know what the term is for that stuff, but for, for dinnerware, Fiesta Ware, I'm sure you've used it is from the Homer Laughlin China I'm Company. I'm going to look
1: it up right now. Hold on.
0: In Newell, in, in Newell, West Virginia. And oh, I've
1: never used that. But I, it looks nice.
0: It's great. I love it.
1: Okay. Never used it. Okay. Nick wants to know, what are the effects of the turnover of the news cycle on the motivation of journalists? As a consumer, it feels like the Watergate-level controversies in modern politics are forgotten and come with no political cost to the subject because the public is pushed quickly to the next outrage. Therefore, as an outsider, I sense that journalists are less likely to pursue a story that would require the public to stay engaged for weeks or months.
0: I, I, I will quote uh, a great editor of mine, Stephen G. Smith, who w- one of his one of his axioms was don't run past the story. So very often we have a tendency. It's like, okay, here's the thing. Now we're moving on, da-da-da-da, and we haven't really covered it, and we haven't really helped readers or viewers or listeners understand what it is and go to the right kind of depth. We're so driven by the micro news cycle, and this is, and I, don't, I don't mean to just bag on Twitter all the time, but this is one of the ways in which journalist Twitter addiction is damaging to our vocation because you get the scoop, you do the story. And with, except for something like this with Politico's super scoop, the stories, it evaporates. Nick's right. It's already gone, right? We had the scoop and here it goes. Now we're on to the next thing. Twitter is not a waterfall or social media is not a waterfall that brings a succession of stories, right? It's not like, oh, then we had this story and then we had that story. We had this story and we had that story. It's sort of an infinity loop. It's sort of a, (laughs) it's, it's a Mobius strip. It is everything all at once. And it's very hard for news outlets to prioritize stories anymore, to say, this is the most important story. This is the second most important story. This is the third most important story. We're focusing on this. We're focusing on that. I think the motivation, the the immediacy of everything has caused us to overvalue scoops and breaking news. And that is, that is a problem as opposed to depth of coverage i think that is a problem but i also think part of the problem is that audiences just don't have a very long attention span right they 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 are not they're not going to hang around for the in-depth coverage
1: nick you were asking about the political cost to the subject and i think it it's true that if it's one story that's a big story and it comes in a single story or two stories in a week it usually passes and that if it were me and when it is me like architecting um, a story and trying to do damage, it has to be several stories over a period of months. It is hard to do with one story, but also Watergate wasn't one story. It was drip, 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 drip. And in that sense, I don't think that much has changed, but you're right that The way to keep the public engaged on a story is to draw out the coverage and to have, you know, one thing every week. And I think the damaging political stories, we just saw this with this congressman from Hawaii who had this weird arrangement. He was like a pilot. He had a separate job for a Hawaiian airline and there was like a drip, drip. Drip, drip about this arrangement. And that's where the damage is done when it's one story and then another and another and another and another. And basically it stays in the news because there's little bits of new information that continue coming out and driving new coverage as opposed I, to one big story.
0: I, th- I think the political consequences part has more to do, and media is obviously part of this, but with the partisan split and the intensity of partisanship, negative partisanship in American politics today. Once upon a time, so who was it that told Richard Nixon to use the Watergate model? Who was it that told Richard Nixon that he was going to resign? It was Republicans, right? Barry Goldwater led the delegation. They went up to the White House and they said, we're not we're not coming with you on whatever the next. we're not we're not following you into the impeachment trial, and you you will get convicted and you will be removed from office. And that's why Nixon said, "I'm going to not I give Nixon a little more credit than that." but that was the that was the the thing that motivated him to leave what happened with the clinton impeachment what happened with both of the trump impeachments the republicans the democrats for clinton the republicans for trump turned a blind eye to things that in the other party they would have immediately voted to convict on right in a heartbeat but didn't do it because partisan because the the, because of the great sorting of the 1990s and a bunch of reasons, the intensity of the partisanship is such that if you get a great story, so Donald Trump never had majority support in the country and Donald Trump wasn't appealing to any Democrats in either, in any sense of that word. So they would say like, we have this great story. We've busted Donald Trump on violating the emoluments clause with his hotels. And guess what? everybody who already didn't like donald trump said aha and all the republicans said i don't care you can't make me care i won't care and that's the problem the problem is that because of the way partisanship works that politicians don't pay a price because the sides don't hold themselves accountable any anymore in a in a real way
1: chris next up we have a hilarious note from glenn and glenn writes Hi, Eliana. I love the podcast. I listen as soon as it hits my Apple podcast feed. I'm also a longtime reader of Powerline.
0: What is Powerline?
1: that? I was going to say that is a blog written in part by my dad. And Glenn says I was since 2002 or one, um, one
0: of one of the I'll, I'll 20 say it. years. I'll say it for you. One of the er formative blogs of the of that era of political blogging and everything was a a huge part of that equation as the Internet was sorting itself out.
1: So Glenn says, I was a regular reader before the 61st minute, and that is the blog post on Powerline that led to Dan Rather's resignation from CBS News, exposing the the story that rather did on on George W. Bush's National Guard service as a fraud. The, New York um, T- the
0: the the reporting that The New York Times, I will always love, refer to as fake but accurate.
1: Yeah. So Glenn writes, I believe that your dad is the best news commentator active today and has been for some time. I would love to hear a segment where you interview him. Please. I'm old and I don't ask for much. Glenn, that was such a nice email. I I loved it and I sent it to my dad. I sent it to my dad and my dad responded that I would like to say he is a very discerning gentleman, but LOL. Well,
0: I think Glenn is right. And I think your dad should be our next or among the very next that we do for our interview series. I would love to do that. I would love to get to know him. I'd love to hear his Minnesota accent. I'd love to, I'd love to find out. It is quite thick. I'd like, I'd like to find out what it was like in the wild and woolly days of the early blogosphere. And yes, please.
1: Glenn, Glenn, we will make your day. Dad, I hope you're up for it. Chris, your favorite time of the week. I will, in fact, say something nice, but you will lead by example.
0: I'm going to ask you, cause mine'll make a better kicker. I'm going to ask you, we're going to switch it all up here. And I'm going to ask you to give yours first, cause yours is important and mine is silly.
1: Oh, sure. Mine is a shout out of cautious optimism to the new CNN president, Chris and Chris's favorite other Chris, Chris Licht, (laughs) who on his first day on the job, encouraged employees to question groupthink. I am skeptical that he will find success without mass firings, but Godspeed, Chris Licht.
0: Uh, that cost speed, other Chris cautious optimism, good optimism. I want to give a shout out to Trevor Noah, who sometimes I find a little insufferable and I find his, I I was concerned that when it was announced that he was the white house correspondence association dinner speaker or comedian, I thought, you know, this is a guy who really grinds it as a liberal Democrat. Like he, he brings so much progressive energy to his show and so many attacks on Republicans. I thought, I hope this is, I hope that, you know, I hope that the White House Correspondent Center would die that I thought I had hoped that Trump had killed it, but it is back and, and, and so be it. But the I thought, oh, is this going to be uh, bagging, just bagging on the right? And, they, and Noah had some zingers for Republicans, certainly, and Fox News and all that stuff. But he handed it out in a pretty, a pretty evenly, I thought, from what I saw from all the clips I saw. So I just want to leave folks with this from Trevor Noah at the White House Correspondents Dinner. Take a listen. The word on the streets is actually that um, Jen Saki is uh, going to MSNBC next month. Yeah, yeah. But you know, moving to MSNBC is going to be a big switch up for you because right now your current job is to make the Biden administration look as good as as possible. You know, at all costs. Now you're going to be at MSNBC, and you're going to have to. Um, you'll be fine, actually. That sorry, I don't even know why I, I apologize. So pretty funny, right? I mean, you know, you can. Do Do you think that 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 he was funny? That was funny. Okay. All right. That was funny. Funny's funny good.
1: Chris. That's all the time we have left for the news about the news. Again, if you have a story you want us to talk about, check our show notes for our email or email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Inkstained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches.